is a joy for me to be back here once again. It is always one of those uh, wonderful invitations to receive to come to Countryside. It's been several times already in various contexts that I've had the joy of being here, and every time I know that I am, uh, I receive the great blessing from just being here, seeing what the Lord is doing in, in the ministry here, in the church, and in your lives interacting uh, with you, some always some new faces, some new names every time, and every time I leave, very, very encouraged and thankful for God's goodness through the, the local church. And, and it's amazing that even, uh, you know, when we can travel and visit other churches, it is the beauty of God's design that we, who might be strangers on every other account, can meet together on a Lord's Day like this, have very little personal background in common, and yet immediately find a unity uh, that joins us together in in unspeakable joy and uh, something that the world just cannot understand. And and so to be here is is a a joy and and a, a gratitude for me as I just get to experience that once again. And it certainly ties into the the broader topic of the conference this weekend, the conference on the local church, its beauty, its imperative, its ministries. And I've been given the responsibility this hour to summarize an aspect of local church ministry that we call the ordinances. And so the title of the session that I want to deliver this morning and trust that the Lord will use it in your life to edify you is called Nurturing a Love for the Ordinances of Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, in the second hour, I will try to give a summary of the New Testament teaching on leadership in the local church. Both of these topics, this one right now on the ordinances, as well as the topic on leadership, are really two of the issues against which many in our day with a superficial kind of Christianity push against pretty strongly. Uh, Both leadership and then the ordinances. And this morning, right now in this hour, I I wanna focus on the ordinances and, and, and emphasize that this is a neglected teaching in the church today and, and you can see that this neglect manifests itself in a lot of unhealthy thinking. The ordinances, when understood and practiced correctly, really challenge the individualistic, narcissistic tendencies that we find in our culture at large, but even uh, in, in the broader church today. So what we want to do this hour is, is take the time to, to survey these, these ordinances to understand what Scripture is, is requiring of us in terms of how we approach them and how we practice them. But to begin with, it's important to, to look at this text for just a moment, one that has been stated multiple times this weekend. The statement that Jesus made in Matthew when he stated to Peter... In Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now anyone who truly loves the Lord Jesus Christ, anyone who makes that profession of adoration of him, will love the things that he loves. And he loves his church. 
And he has instituted various, various components, various ministries that are for the benefit of that church. And so if we love Christ, we will love what he is doing in the church. We will love how he is building the church. And it means that we will love things like the ordinances. But as I said, today there is such a superficial approach to the ordinances because of our narcissistic individualistic tendencies. Baptism, for example, in many contexts today is falling by the wayside. It's treated like a pool party, literally, in some churches. I heard of a church recently where they they hadn't practiced baptism for quite some time. The pastor and the leadership realized, well, it is something in the Great Commission that we have to do, so what do we do? And they basically organized pool parties on a Sunday morning where people could just come and baptize each other and have fun in the water. And then with the Lord's Supper, it's not unusual to hear of churches that will just have little packets at the doors and just encourage people, you know what, on your way home, just grab a little packet. And sometime throughout the week when you're having your quiet time and, and you want to have some special time with the Lord, just crack that open eat the the little biscuit in there, drink the little cup, and and you'll fulfill what the Lord has required. Those approaches dishonor our Lord Jesus Christ and what he has designed for his church in terms of these ordinances. So what are the ordinances? Well, when we open this topic, we have to look at some of the terminology that is used and Again, it's very difficult for me to, in, in the period of one hour, essentially, to summarize all of this. So there are a lot of issues that I can't touch on, and you will probably have many questions. Perhaps during the break I can try to answer some of those, but I'll try to give you the, 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 the real critical information here as God has given it to us in His Word and, and as that has worked out in history. But when we talk about the ordinances, we have to start with some terminology Now, in broader Christianity, the usual terms that are used, uh, the usual term that is used to refer to the ordinances is the term sacraments. And so I just want to mention that briefly. Where did that come from? Well, the term sacrament comes from a Latin term, the Latin term sacramentum, which is a translation in in, uh, Jerome's Vulgate of a Greek word, musterion. The Greek word musterion is the word from which we, we get our English word mystery, And it's based essentially upon Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32, where in the Latin Vulgate, uh, Jerome translated the the phrase translated in our NASB text, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. You know that text in Ephesians 5 is, is referring to marriage. And so when Paul says this mystery is great, the Latin Vulgate takes that, translates the word mystery as sacrament, and then uses that to refer to marriage as a sacrament. But if you trace the, the, the background on this, the idea is, through this use of the word sacrament, that in the, the ordinance itself, there is mystery. That there is some kind of inherent power that is present in the sacrament. And so the idea is then that we must refer to these elements as mysterious, communicating divine power, efficacious grace through the mere administration of these ordinances. 
But we use the term ordinances instead, and it is to be preferred for this reason. It, it emphasizes not some kind of mysterious power that is inherent in the element itself, but rather we use the term ordinances because we emphasize the power of the one who gave them. The word ordinances is connected to the word ordain. And we use the term ordinances because it is Christ who ordained these things. Christ who commanded these practices to be observed in His church and obeyed and celebrated for His glory. So ordinances makes that that direct uh, it makes that direct statement awareness that it is Christ who has commanded these things and the power is in Him, not in the elements themselves. Now sometimes the term or the phrase means of grace will also be used with respect to the ordinances. And that is an acceptable term so long as we realize that there are many means of grace that the Lord uses. Means of grace, when we refer to that, we refer to the ways that the Lord builds His church, specifically in the individual lives of the, the saved. So when we talk about means of grace, we're talking about those things by which God sanctifies his church, the people of his church. We can talk about the preaching of the word of God or the ministry of the word of God as a means of grace. Prayer is a means of grace. Fellowship is a means of grace. Evangelism is a means uh, of grace. There are these various means that the Lord has used or the Lord has designated as ways in which we would be transformed from glory to glory as we are conformed to the image of his Son. But when we use that phrase, means of grace, we have to remember that it is not that these elements in themselves have some kind of efficacious power on the individual regardless of his status with Jesus Christ. And I'll get to that more in just a moment. But that's the the terminology that is associated with our discussion this morning. Sacrament, ordinance, and means of grace. Now, when we talk about these ordinances, another issue that is raised is, what is the number specifically of these ordinances? And if you're familiar with Roman Catholicism, they explicitly recognize seven uh, sacraments in, in their terminology, and those are baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, penance, marriage, holy orders, and last rites, or sometimes called extreme unction. And in those cases, there's seven uh, again, have efficacious power that is invested in those very things regardless of the status of the one who receives them. Now, we as Protestants who seek to establish our convictions, our doctrines on the basis of Scripture alone would say that there are only two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. So, for example, in the 1689 London Baptist Confession, we read these words. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances of positive and sovereign institution appointed by the Lord Jesus, the only lawgiver, to be continued in His church to the end of the world. That is a very good summary of these ordinances. 
And again, if we use the phrase means of grace to refer to these ordinances, then we would also put them in the same category as things like the ministry of God's Word, prayer, worship, fellowship, church discipline, evangelism, and so on and so forth. Now, in coming back for just a moment to the issue of the Roman Catholic understanding of the sacraments, Wayne Grudem has a good statement here as he describes the difference between how we as Protestant evangelicals understand the ordinances and how Roman Catholicism with its, its history and tradition understands the sacraments. He writes this in his Systematic Theology, quote, There is not only a difference in the lists given by Catholics and Protestants, the seven versus the two. There is also a difference in fundamental meaning. Catholics view these as means of salvation that make people more fit to receive justification from God. But in the Protestant view, the means of grace are simply means of additional blessing with the Christian life and do not add to our fitness to receive justification from God. Catholics teach that the means of grace impart grace whether there is subjective faith on the part of the minister or the recipient, while Protestants hold that God only imparts grace when there already is faith on the part of the person's receiving these means. Along the way, in the Roman Catholic system, and it's important to understand this idea, to understand the distinction, the fundamental categorical difference between our understanding of the ordinances and Roman Catholicism and the Eastern Orthodoxy's understanding of the ordinances or the sacraments and their terminology by understanding one important phrase. Now, the, you don't have to remember this. The, the Latin phrase, ex opera operato. You might have heard of that. You might wonder, what is that? Because it will often in Catholic circles be associated with the sacraments. What does that mean? Well, for the Roman Catholic, that phrase, ex opera operato, means that the, the, the ordinance or the sacrament has power within it regardless of the recipient. Power within it regardless of the recipient. So if that is a baby being baptized, it doesn't matter whether that baby has faith or not. Obviously, an infant just a, a several days old or several weeks old does not have personal faith. But the sacrament of baptism for the Roman Catholic in itself communicates this mysterious power to the baby. Ex opera operato. The Efficacy is merely in the work performed regardless of the recipient or in the administration of the, what the Roman Catholic Church calls the Mass, the sacrament of the cup and the bread. That regardless of what is going on in the mind of the recipient, whether that person has any kind of faith even, doesn't matter. There is an efficacy merely in the work performed. And so adherence to Roman Catholicism believe doesn't matter what you've done throughout the week. doesn't matter really what, what mindset you are in. You just go and take the Mass and it's going to have this power in your life. Now let's talk also for a moment 
stepping away from that discussion about the form of these ordinances as we understand them, the two that have been ordained by Christ. When we talk about the ordinances, it's interesting to note that with each of these, there is a tangible element associated. And this is important. We'll come back to this a little later. It will explain why these, these tangible concrete uh, elements are associated with these ordinances. With baptism, there is the form of, of the water. There is the element of the water. Very important. With the Lord's Supper, there is the element of the bread and the wine. Now these tangible elements are important for the following reasons. And you may not have thought about this before, but there is a, there is a direct reason why our Lord instituted these these ordinances, why he instituted these practices and connected them with these concrete things. First of all, it is a picturing of a spiritual truth by means of a material substance. So both of these ordinances have a message. Both of these ordinances are connected with spiritual truth, but we are not just spiritual, but we are also material creatures. We live in a material world. That's what we've been created to, to do, to, to live in and exist within that environment. And so for us, it is important that we have these things that would associate or picture these spiritual truths with some kind of material reality. So for the spiritual truth of baptism, there is the material picture of the immersion and the coming out of the water. And for the, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, there is the picture, there is the concrete, tangible element of the bread and the wine. Secondly, the, the, there's another reason for this tangible expression, why this is done in, in, in a concrete form, and it's this. It's because we celebrate a historical event. In other words, an event that is not ha has not happened or is not happening at the moment. It's something that has happened in the past, but we are able to celebrate it in the present moment. These, these concrete uh, means, these concrete expressions, these elements allow us to celebrate historical realities, connecting us as temporal, uh, as temporal beings to to works in, in the past, in historical redemption. And then thirdly, it allows us to express something that is true on the inside, on the outside, on the public stage. That which is true inwardly to express it externally. That's why these elements are so helpful. Now let's look first at baptism. And I'm going to go through the material on baptism pretty quickly because... This material uh, is, is uh, I'm sure, uh, very much uh, available uh, through the teaching of this church. Pa uh, Pastor uh, Tom, I'm sure, has, has preached on this, and you probably have a lot of good material on this. So with baptism, I'm going to go through it relatively quickly. When we talk about baptism, again, we have to talk about its ordinance. It, it's being ordained. And so our key text comes from Matthew 28, 
18 to 20, where Jesus says this, or where we read this in Matthew's gospel. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, the disciples, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So that was its its ordinance. That was the ordaining of Christ. He instituted it as a practice. And notice when we look at that, it is a practice that is to be celebrated, to be practiced to the end of the age. Now we see its implementation then in the book of Acts. As we go from that institution to its implementation, we see this over and over and over again. I won't go through all these texts, but we can look at Acts 2, verse 38 and 41, where Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, and you have a command to be baptized And then those who had received the word of the gospel were baptized. Acts chapter 8 verse 12. The Samaritans, after hearing and believing the preaching of the good news, they were baptized, men and women alike. Acts 8.36. The Ethiopian eunuch, after he hears Philip explain to him Jesus as the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, the eunuch believes it and, and then recognizes the need for baptism. What prevents me from being baptized? Acts 10, you have the baptism of Cornelius and those in his household who believed. Gentiles are baptized. Acts 18, verse 8, we read of Crispus, the leader of the synagogue in Corinth. He believed with all his household. So the people in his household believed as well and And many others heard as well, and they were believing and were being baptized. Acts 19, the baptism of that interesting group of disciples of John the Baptist who had not heard of the the start of the church. They had not heard of Pentecost, and so they are baptized in the name of Jesus. When it when we talk about baptism, we also have to talk about its participants then. So we see its institution, we see its implementation. Now, what about its participants? Who receives baptism? Well, when we look at the biblical teaching at face value, it is unequivocal that the recipients of baptism are those who have believed the gospel. Proof for this, what we call believer's baptism, baptism of believers, or sometimes called credo-baptism, Credo, because the Latin for I believe is credo, and so we call it credo-baptism, based on belief, based on a profession of belief. And proof for this position over infant baptism, what is called pedobaptism, from the Greek term pedos or, or child, you, you know of pediatrics, pedobaptism is infant baptism, but the scriptural or the theological evidence and support for believer's baptism over infant baptism is, is uh, summarized into three categories. First of all, the biblical data. There is simply no evidence anywhere, no description of any, in, of any infant ever receiving baptism. It's just not present in the New Testament. Secondly, there is the purpose of the sign itself. As we read all of the Uh, the the instruction that is given in the New Testament regarding what this sign represents, uh, the theology of it simply 
does not support the idea of extending that ordinance to infants, to those who have not made a profession of faith. And then thirdly, we can look at the practice of the early church. We see it in the book of Acts. No infants are baptized in the book of Acts. Uh, We can see it in, in early Christian writings that up until the third century, the practice of the early church was to baptize only those who professed faith. It was only then in the third century for multiple reasons why transition started to occur and the baptizing of babies started to occur. And it was only by the fifth century where that practice was actually accepted as the standard for the church 400 years after the apostles. For example, the Didache, a second century summation of Christian teaching at the time, says this, Let no one eat or drink of your Eucharist except those who have been baptized into the name of the Lord. Baptism, the Schleitheim Confession of 1527, which is the earliest Anabaptist confession of faith, says this, baptism shall be given to all those who have learned repentance and amendment of life and who believe truly that their sins are taken away by Christ and to all those who walk in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and who wish to be buried with him in death so that they might be resurrected with him and to all those who with this significance request it of us and demand it for themselves. That's the summation of the earliest Anabaptists as they looked at the biblical teaching and realized that those who are to receive baptism are those who are to receive it upon a conscious confession of faith. Let's also talk about the mode of baptism. How is it to be done? Well, this is important as well. The the Greek word of baptism is the, the word bapto, which means to dip. It means to dip, and you see it in several times used in the New Testament, for example, you see it twice in John 13, 26, where Jesus say, says this in the farewell discourse or the upper room discourse. He says, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So the, the, the word bapto means to, to dip. And From that comes the word baptizo, which means to baptize. And in the New Testament, consistent with that root idea of to dip, the word baptism consistently means immersion. Immersion into something, whether that be a literal or a figurative concept. Matthew 3.16, for example, the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist, which is a different kind of baptism than ours is, But in Matthew 3.16, we read this. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. So after being immersed, not poured, not sprinkled, not wetted, but he was immersed. After being immersed, you could translate that as, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. It's immersion, always Uh, in the New Testament is immersion. There is no debate or ambiguity about how it was practiced. Now, what is its significance? To summarize what what, uh, baptism is and 
and, and, and understand its, its theological significance for us, I want to give you several important sum, summary statements here on the significance of baptism and why all of us should understand and relate to baptism very, very seriously. And perhaps there's some even in the room here who have professed faith but have not yet been baptized, and you may be wondering, is this really that important? Perhaps this is something optional. Perhaps this is something I can postpone until a more convenient time of life. But I want to make the case that baptism is something that is very, very serious, which obviously requires very careful self-examination before you receive it. But it is also an exhortation, a prompt for those of you who have not been baptized to realize what is communicated by this ordinance. First of all, it is a symbol of cleansing. A symbol of cleansing. What we could call a, an external reenactment of what has already taken place in the spiritual realm. So when you read the biblical discussions of, of baptism, you do find that it's connected to this idea of the remission of sins. Now, when we look at the whole New Testament, there's no idea given that uh, some external act, some work, some form of obedience is what atones for our sin, is what removes our sin. That's, that's not what baptism does. However, baptism is that, again, that concrete physical sign that, that reenacts what has happened to us spiritually. So we all understand the going into water and the coming out of water. It had a long practice already in Jewish baptism, and certainly even in our day, we can understand the picture of it. It, it pictures a, a cleansing. It pictures that there has been a, a cleansing from sin, its stain and its condemnation. And so when a person is baptized, what he essentially is doing is showing externally what has happened to him? He takes it, or she takes it, seriously. Number two, it is also an act of discipleship. Baptism is an act of discipleship. In fact, it should be one of the earliest forms uh, or expressions of discipleship. It is a primary opportunity to express submission to the Lord by obeying His command. The Lord said, make disciples, baptizing them. And so if you are a disciple of Christ... If you are in Christ, obedience to Him should matter. If you love the Lord Jesus, this should be something that, that motivates you, that excites you. Here is something that I can do that expresses my obedience to my Lord and Savior. It is an expression also of solidarity. Baptism is to be done with a particular formula, and that is found in Matthew chapter uh, Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, where it is to be done in the name of. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That triune listing there is very important because when we baptize people and when you have received baptism or will receive baptism, what it does is it identifies you as one who is in solidarity with, in union with the triune God. It distinguishes you from all other religions, distinguishes you from all other quasi-expressions of Christianity, and it, it makes, it, it, it pictures you. It expresses your solidarity with the triune God. 
as well, as well, it is an initiation into the church. It is an initiation into the church. What, what, what does that mean? Well, it is a visible rite that identifies to a local church that you are a member already of the universal church. And so, when we talk about uh, the idea of membership uh, in a local church, the... The, the, the rite of baptism is that sign to a local body of believers that this is one of ours and we accept him or her now into our midst to enjoy that intimate fellowship. In fact, you see that in Acts chapter 2. What happens there? In Acts chapter 2 verse 38, uh, the apostle Peter preaches, repent and be baptized. And it's interesting to know what immediately happens after that in verses 41 to 42. So then those who had received the word were baptized. And that day they were added to the Jerusalem church about 3,000 souls. Do you see the connection there? There was baptism and addition. So the, the baptism was that right to, to introduce them into the membership of the Jerusalem church. They counted. They knew exactly who those people were were and they were accepted into the Jerusalem church. It goes on to say then in verse 42 that those who were baptized then continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Baptism is that introductory rite, that initiation into a local church and it's so important for that. Now let's turn to the Lord's Supper. What's What's behind the institution of the Lord's Supper? Let's begin with some of its terminology. Some will call it the Eucharist. And there's reason for that, actually biblical reason. It comes from the Greek verb eucharisteo, Eucharist, eucharisteo. And eucharisteo means I give thanks. And, and we find that in Jesus' last supper with his disciples. He took the bread and he gave thanks. And so that terminology of the Eucharist has been associated with the Lord's Supper because of the giving of thanks. Now, it's not a terminology, unfortunately, that, that we like to use because of all the baggage that is associated with it because of the highly sacramental idea of Roman Catholicism, for example. But the terminology is actually biblical. Its historical usage, unfortunately, has uh, thrown some... some, some uh, bad history and bad light on that term. We also use the term communion. And the term communion is another biblical term. It comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, where the apostle Paul says this, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing, a sharing, a communion in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing uh, in the body of Christ? So communion, because of that fellowship with koinonia is the word there in the body and blood of Christ so communion is a biblical term the Lord's table is used in 1 Corinthians 10 21 the Lord's supper is used in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 20 and the breaking of bread is also used that term breaking of bread also had connections uh, to just 
fellowship around the table in general. This term is, is a little broader and not as, a, as specific as these other ones are. The breaking of bread can simply refer to Christian fellowship. And there's debate about this, whether that's Acts chapter 2, verse 42, or Acts chapter 20, verse 7, where the term breaking of bread is used. But there's good reason to understand that together with the fellowship of the church around the table the partaking of a meal together that joined with that was the celebration of the Lord's death. And so from that we get the term, the breaking of of bread as, as well. That's the terminology. What about its institution? And here we have more texts even than baptism. Matthew 26, 26, 29, and this is the only one I'll read with respect to its institution. Here we read this, and this is repeated in in, uh, similar wording in all of the synoptic gospels, Mark and Luke as well. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when they had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it in with you anew in my Father's kingdom. That's the institution. Jesus actually brings the practice of the Passover meal to an end with this last supper. We call it the last supper Because this was an important transition to the celebration of the Lord's Supper, Passover to the Lord's Supper. So really what happens there in that upper room is is really unique and distinct. We don't do exactly that which was done uh, that we just read of there. Because in that moment, Jesus brings to an end the Passover. 